We're going to think this morning about, about Caleb, and that record we just read in Judges 1 is, is a pretty sad story, isn't it, of how Israel failed to drive out the Canaanites. How they, as I see it, they grabbed their little piece of land, their sort of farmsteads, and they were minimalists. They were just happy with a little bit of land, and they did not want to see the bigger picture. They didn't want to drive out any of the, uh, the more difficult tribes. They just let them stay out there in the mountains, or even allowed themselves to be pushed around uh, by them. And they did not bother trying to ensure that all their brethren got their inheritance in the kingdom. This was spiritual uh, selfishness, if you like, at, at its worst. And so, in this rather sad chapter of Israel's failure, there's one little bit that stands out, like a, a light in the black, and it's the, the record of, of Caleb, who, quite differently to all the people around him, actually has the ambition to take uh, the land that <coughs> that. Uh, he had, he had earlier viewed when he spied out Canaan and he takes it to himself and he expels them verse 20, the three sons of Anak and his daughter uh, verse 13, 14 uh, also has that kind of spiritual ambition that her father had and also asks him for, for territory, he gives it to her which meant of course that she and her family had to drive out the Canaanites that were there so then, Caleb throughout the record stands out as, as a loner, as somebody who, even within the context of God's people, that is the ecclesia of his day, the people of Israel, faithfully followed the Lord, even though the others didn't. And that, I, I think, is a, a major theme that, you, that comes out uh, with Caleb, that it's not just a case of being separate from this world and not doing as the people around us do, but it's very often a case that even within <coughs> the, the people of God, even within the context of, of the Ecclesia, that we stand for our principles and we keep our personal focus upon God's kingdom. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 that we should not compare ourselves amongst ourselves. He says that is not wise. And yet that is something which, because we are social creatures, we live in society, we are used to comparisons all the time, it's something that's very, very easy to do. And I have that single-minded focus upon our inheritance of God's kingdom. Regardless of whatever standards the, the people around us within the Ecclesia want to adopt, that is very difficult. And I think that is what comes out to me with... Um, with, with, with Caleb. Now, you remember back in Numbers 13 that there were 12 spies sent out to, to view the land and only Caleb and Joshua returned with the, the message that yes, it's a good land and that the apparently mighty people who were dwelling there in the land um, were actually weak before God and that they were well able to overcome the land uh, and to take that inheritance in God's kingdom. And the other ten spies said, no, no, we can't do it, we are not able to, to do this. And they even tried to stone Caleb to death. That's in Numbers 14, verse 10. So you can see the sort of relationship that Caleb must have had with, with the others, that he must have felt that really, because of Israel's weakness, he had, as it were, wasted 
40, 45 years of his life, that he was 40 years old when they, they spied out the land. He had to suffer because of the failure of Israel and it seemed wasted 40, 45 years of his life. And he would have remembered, of course, Israel turning against him, all because he said, we really can enter the kingdom and try to stone him to death. That was how he had touched their consciences. Now, of course, this whole picture of them inheriting the land is uh, speak, it speaks to each one of us individually, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel's passage through the Red Sea, their exodus from Egypt, this speaks of our baptism in the cloud and in the sea, and then, of course, we walk through the, the desert, the wilderness of this life, feeding on the manna, on the, the bread from heaven, until we also can come to enter the kingdom. And so those Canaanites in the land, those walled cities, those things which seem to be insuperable obstacles to inheritance of the kingdom, these of course speak of those things which we likewise tend to think are insuperable obstacles. Maybe habits, maybe the influence of our past, our present environments, our life experiences, but in fact, all those things, although they appear so strong and significant, are in fact far weaker or far less obstacles to inheriting the kingdom than they might appear. Not that they aren't strong of themselves or significant, but God's desire to grant us the kingdom is stronger by, by far. So then, from where then did Caleb get his persuasion? that he and Israel could surely inherit the kingdom with, with such ease. Well, we read four times that Caleb followed the Lord faithfully. Numbers 14.24, 32.12, Deuteronomy 1.36, Joshua 14.14. Caleb followed Yahweh faithfully. I'd like to draw your attention to Numbers 14.24 where we're told that my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, or faithfully, him will I bring into the land. He had another spirit. Well, yes, that does in a sense speak to the way that he was different from the others in, as it were, the ecclesia of his day. But that Hebrew word translated another, it's really related to the Hebrew word translated to follow. Because he had a following spirit with him, therefore he followed God fully. Now, Caleb means a dog. And he was, although he was a prince of the tribe of Judah, he was a Kenizzite, so he had some sort of Gentile connection. But... Um, I think the idea of him faithfully following, and the fact his name means dog, I'm sure that this is, is all intentional. But in what sense then did he faithfully follow Yahweh? And why is this emphasised so much? Well, you remember in Exodus 23, 23, God says that he had sent his angel ahead of Israel. That the angel went ahead really uh, in the pillar of fire, pillar of uh, cloud by, by, by day, pillar of fire by night, <clears throat> to, 
told in Numbers 10 verse 33 that also the ark with the uh, angelic presence of God over it went ahead to spy out a resting place for Israel. And so then the angel had gone before Israel and of course had gone into the land. Deuteronomy 1, 29 and 30 were told that because Yahweh Elohim which is often a, a title that, that's associated with God's mighty ones, the angels, that because Yahweh Elohim had gone before Israel into the land, they need have no fear nor dread of the peoples who were there. And twice we read about God sending what he calls the hornet ahead of Israel. Je- Deuteronomy 7 verse 20, Joshua 24 verse 12, that God sent ahead what he calls the hornet, to prepare the way for Israel to enter the land, to, to soften up the tribes to, that, that live there, to prepare the kingdom for Israel's inheritance. So I think that, John, uh, that uh, Joshua and Caleb very strongly had this sense that the angel had gone in front of them and they were simply following where they had been led. And this idea of following the angel This is actually quite significant uh, in Scripture. You might remember that time when David's army were told to follow the sound of a marching that was going on over some uh, mulberry trees. It's 1 Chronicles 14 verse 15. Now that sound of marching which they heard above them was actually the sound of the, the cherubim of the angels marching, God's armies marching to war. And they on earth were asked to follow that sound. When they marched, they were to march. Professor Chronicles um, 11.22 Sorry, um, no, 14.15 as I said. Now God says to David, When you, David, shall hear a sound of going in the tops of the mulberry trees then you shall go out to battle. And I think that would have been a sound similar to the sound heard in Ezekiel 1, where Ezekiel hears the sound of the going of these angel cherubim. Uh, When he heard that sound, he also and his troops were to go out to battle, because God, Elohim, the angels, is gone before you to smite the host of the Philistines. So once the angels had physically, as it were, moved forward, David heard them doing this. He was supposed to move ahead to, as it were, do his human part in bringing God's purpose about. And in Psalm 60 verse 10, David seems to allude to this when he talks about God going out with the hosts of Israel. So then God's armies, God's hosts, become connected with the hosts or the armies of God's people on earth. And that's why 1 Chronicles 11.22 we have the stranger comment that David's hosts were as the hosts of God. So then David and, and the men with him were walking in step with the angel above them. You get this very clearly in Ezekiel's vision of the, the cherubim. Ezekiel 1 verse, verse 12 <clears throat> each of the cherubim, the cherubim had straight feet Isaiah 57 verse 2 in the RV margin 
God's people should go each one straight before him. Very same language as the language of the cherubim. Where they go, where the cherubim went in Ezekiel's vision, there the wheels on earth follow them. And I don't think it just means automatically. I think that is, is talking about the way that God's people on earth are to reflect the angel cherubim above them. I think that's why the four faces of the angel cherubim were reflected in the four standards of the camp of Israel. And this idea is picked up in Galatians 5 verse 25, where we're told that if we are in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we are part of that huge angelic system that is above us, and we are simply to reflect them here on earth. Talking about the angel cherubim having straight feet and Isaiah 57 too, that we should each one go straight before him. You, you got the same really when uh, Israel take Jericho. The angel went into Jericho to take the city. The Israelites were to go straight ahead in front of them. You can check that out. Uh, Joshua 5:13 and 14 uh, and 6:20. Now, for Caleb, these weren't just nice ideas. He really believed this. He really believed that God had gone ahead of him and had desired to give Israel that land. And so, he went ahead. Now, in our cases, who has gone ahead of us? Who is the Ark of the Lord who has gone ahead, three days' journey, as it were, in front of us? Well, it's clearly the Lord Jesus and his resurrection after three days because I live you shall live also so then we have been promised inheritance in the kingdom and that is a clear promise it's a definite promise and it comes down to whether we like Caleb are simply going to believe it he says in uh, Numbers 14 verse, uh, verse 8 he says to Israel, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Now he doesn't mean, well, we don't know if God delights in us or not, because he's saying, look, we must go in and take the land. He's saying, since the Lord delights in us, now that's a, an amazing idea, that God delights in man, that God Almighty should have a delight in you and me, and of course our dysfunction kicks in and says, yeah, but who am I? You know, I'm a nothing special kind of person. And here, I think, is the greatest challenge to human faith. To believe that God loves me. That God delights in me. That it is his good will to give me the kingdom. And he goes on, Caleb does, in verse 9 of Numbers 14, Only rebel not against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land, their defence is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. So he sees a lack of faith in God's desire to give us the kingdom as rebellion against the Lord. So, at first sight, a strange thing to say, but that is in fact how serious it is if we say, well, no, I don't think I will be in God's kingdom. This is rebellion against the Lord. He really had faith here in God's love for Israel. He says, verse 9, 
their defence is departed from them and the Lord is with us, Emmanuel, God with us their defence has departed from um, and yet he had been there, he had seen these great big walls of places like Jericho built up as high as heaven and he says no, 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 their defence is gone from them it's not really there but it was that which struck the other um, spies very strongly that there were these great big walls of these, these cities and, and yet Caleb says no, 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 their defence has disappeared, it's not there now this is really faith of course we have the advantage of knowing the, the account of Rahab who was there in Jericho and said to the spies well, yeah we've got these great big walls and I actually live on the wall but um, we've got these because we're cowering in fear because of you and your God and Caleb perceived that he perceived that very much so So for him, what appeared so real and concrete and tangible, these huge walls, were not there at all. That defence had departed from them, he says. <coughs> and he keeps going on about how the land is a good land, a land which flows with, with milk and honey. And so then, we are able to enter God's kingdom. If you look at Numbers 13, verses 30 and 31, you see the contrast between Caleb and the other spies. Caleb says, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. We are able. We are not able. Now, when God decides to destroy that generation in the wilderness, Moses points out, Numbers 14 verse 16 that people are going to say if God actually totally destroyed Israel because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land therefore he has slain them in the wilderness so then was God able or was God not able it appeared that God was not able to bring that generation into the land but that was because they said we are not able Verse 31. So we get to a situation where, as Psalm 78 says, Israel limited the Holy One of Israel. Because although God could save everybody and anybody on whatever basis, He, in one sense, allows Himself to be limited by our faith in His ability. It's rather like the man who says to Jesus, If you can do anything, please do so to, to heal his child and Jesus turns the question back to him as he so often does and says if you are able to believe all things are possible so he's saying Look, the limitation is not with God it is with you it is solely with you and your faith and so it is really with this ultimately important question the most important question of our eternal destiny is will I live eternally in God's kingdom that's the, that's the question and the answer to that is not well if I'm good enough I will no the answer is that it is God's good pleasure his good will to give us the kingdom the sole reason that is highlighted in Hebrews 3.18 and other places 
for their failure to enter the land was they did not believe. It does not say because they cuddled the idols of Egypt in their uh, in their clothes, because they took up the star of their god Remphan as, as well as the tabernacle of God in the wilderness, all the other things they did. Actually, it was not all that stuff that stopped them entering, because God wanted them to enter, despite all that weakness. You know, they were carrying two tabernacles in the wilderness, tabernacle of Yahweh and the tabernacle of their god Remphan uh, that they took out of Egypt. They must have taken through the Red Sea. I mean, their weakness in the wilderness was or certainly at the time of the Exodus, was, was incredible. Want to get back to Egypt and all the rest of it. Um, but the only reason in the end they did not enter the land was not because of human weakness. It was simply because they did not believe that God really could give them that land. And I'm afraid that that is the same problem and the same reason why people today in our generation will not enter God's kingdom. To put it very simply, it's because they can't believe in God's love. They can't believe that Jesus really has gone ahead of them into God's kingdom and opened the way for us to be there if we will believe. It's not a case of whether we are morally clean enough, smart enough, good enough to be there. It's a case of whether we believe. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that human behaviour does not matter, or that morality does not matter. Of course not. Because, of course, if we believe that truly I will be in God's kingdom, if that's real faith, faith without works is dead, and, and we will not be passive to that wonderful reality. In Isaiah 53, as you know, we have a whole prophecy there of the death and resurrection and the, the achievement of salvation in Jesus. And it begins by saying, who has believed our report? Now that's, <laughs> that's right out of, of these chapters we're reading here. That is definitely an allusion to Caleb coming back and saying it's a wonderful land, we can enter it, we are well able to overcome it because God delights in us and he will give us this land. And yet they refused to believe that report and they believed the evil report that was brought up by the other spies. So who has believed our report, the message about the death, resurrection and the salvation achieved in Jesus? Isaiah laments, or the, the prophet laments, who has believed our report? What a shame, virtually nobody does. And it's exactly in the spirit of Caleb. You know, him and Joshua falling on their faces, rending their clothes, saying, please Israel, get it. You can be there. God wants you to be there. God delights in you. And he wants to give you this land. It's all so tragic, isn't it? That, in fact, people don't really want it. Because they don't really, they can't believe that God's love and God's desire to give us his kingdom is as great as it really is. I keep on saying the same thing, I can say nothing else, because it is so simple and straightforward. We will be there. But we, everything in us cries out against that. Our dysfunction and our low self-opinion is so powerful in the human psyche that, that we don't want to know that. And you know, like Israel, they pick up stones to, to stone Caleb and Joshua for saying this. I remember a few years ago now, I wrote an editorial in Gospel News called simply, We Will Be There. 
And every, <clears throat> every time I'm doing SEO Gospel News, you know, I put an editorial in there, and I, I normally get quite a bit of feedback. And this editorial, uh, We Will Be There, was saying the simple thing that I've been saying, that on every page of the New Testament, there is the assurance that we who believe in Christ will be saved. And when you put all the passages together, it's a pretty strong case. I don't think I have ever had more angry, negative emails, letters, even phone calls than I, I got out of that editorial. People phoning me up even, emailing me, saying, Duncan, how can you be so presumptuous that we will be saved? I, I mean, I, I despair. I, I despair, really. I do despair. That the good news is too good, it seems, to be believed. And that the whole thing about let's stone Joshua and Caleb came out at me with people saying, but how dare you say that? But I actually took the bullet to actually contact me, write a letter to me, send me an email, call me, and tell me that. I mean, if I read something I don't agree with in a magazine, I don't normally, normally get hold of the guy and, who wrote the article and say, hey, you know, that's really wrong what you said. I, I don't think I've ever done that. Uh, and I've, I've read a lot of magazines in my time. But I don't think I've ever bothered to actually get on to someone and say, look, that's seriously wrong what you said, even though I might have thought that. I just wouldn't be that motivated to actually finally get round to it. And I'm sure everyone's the same, but these people obviously felt that strongly. And I, it, I despair, because really the essence of our salvation is faith in God's salvation, which is in Jesus. Maybe literacy has not helped us, that because we can read the Bible and get very familiar with the Bible text, and we can uh, go chasing up all kinds of meanings in uh, words, etc., we've maybe you know, we, we've missed uh, the essential points. Maybe we can't see the forest for the trees. But there are simple, basic statements in Scripture. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Because I live, you shall live also. I'm sure that in the days of illiteracy, when people were not literate and they didn't have copies of the Bible, they would have based their faith upon simple phrases that they remembered from whoever was reading the text to them, that they would have memorized and thought about and taken strength and comfort from, even unto death, suffering persecution, etc. The simple fact that we will be saved and that the Bible repeatedly promises us and assures us of a place in God's kingdom. This is too simple for us, it seems. We seem to want to make it more complicated than it is. So then, <clears throat> Caleb stood out from the rest of the people around him within the ecclesia by his simple faith that he really would be there in God's kingdom. Now, in Numbers 13, when you've got the record of them going, that the spies going into the land and having a look around, it says that they came from the south and came to Hebron, where Ahim and Sheshai, Talmai, the children of Anak, were. And they came to the brook Eshkol and cut down from thence a branch with a cluster of grapes, and they brought this back to, to the people. Well, it doesn't say that this was Caleb who did this, but I think you can work that out. Because later on, in Joshua 14, we're told that it was Caleb who went to Hebron. It was Caleb who killed the children of Anak. It was Caleb who had Hebron as an inheritance. 
And we're told in Joshua 14 verse, verse 9 that he later on uh, came to Joshua and asked later on for that land to be given him. And he reminds Joshua, how Moses, he said, swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where on your feet, this is Caleb's feet, have trodden, shall be your inheritance, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So then, the land upon which his feet trod, and that was heaven, Eshkol, Kiriath Arba, this land was to be his forever. So it was almost a case of name it and claim it. Now I have really no time at all for this idea that in this life you want a car, name it and claim it. You want a, you want a million dollars, you name it and claim it. This is nonsense. We were asked to pick up a cross and follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, not to get material benefit in, in this life. Quite the opposite. Um, yet in a spiritual sense, when it comes to the things of God's kingdom, it seems that it is like that. Where the souls of our feet have trodden upon we shall receive. So there is such a thing as spiritual ambition. And Caleb clearly had this. And in fact, in our chapter in Judges 1, I think you see how that rubbed off on his, on his daughter. Because he'd been like that. As we just read there in, in Judges 1, he had uh, taken this inheritance to himself. And then he says... Verse 12, whoever smites Kirjath Sefer and takes it, I'll give Axel my daughter to wife. And Othmiel takes this place and he gives him Axel his daughter to wife, so he's inspiring others to spiritual ambition. Verse 14, and it came to pass, when she, that is his daughter, Axel, when she came to him, that she moved him, that is, I take her new husband, Othmiel, to ask of her father a field. And she, Aksar, got off her ass. And Caleb said to her, her donkey, sorry I should have said, she got off her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing, for you've given me a south land, give me also springs of water. Caleb gave her the upper springs and the, and the lower springs. So then, she tried to get her husband, as I see it, to ask Caleb to give them even more land, and he didn't, but she had the ambition to ask Caleb. So I think, uh, and you know, when he said, okay, you know, you can have Kirjath Sefer, okay, you want some springs of water, okay, you have that field over there, you have that area over there, well, they had to go there and drive out those tribes. So I think spiritual ambition to inherit our place in God's kingdom, I think that that rubs off, or it can rub off, on other people, particularly upon our families. And so, what happened then to this inheritance, to this Hebron? Well, we're actually told in Joshua 10.36 that Joshua had taken Hebron, but by the time of Joshua 14, it was not any longer in Israelite hands, and that's why Caleb asks for it, and he goes and kills these sons of Anak there, and uh, takes possession of it. But then, by Samson's time, the Philistines are back there. So then, again you see, as it were, the loneliness and the another spirit kind of thing in, in Caleb. But unfortunately, the rest of Israel just uh, were not like that. They, they took this stuff from, from the, uh, the, the Canaanites and they lost it. 
They didn't keep that inheritance. And it, it was not the case of two steps backwards and three steps forward. It was a case of two steps backward, uh, sorry, two steps forward and three steps backward all the time. And so again, Caleb stands out. And if we are going to be in the kingdom, we have got to have this other spirit. We should be able, no matter what anyone else in the Ecclesia tells you, you should be able to say, by grace I shall be saved. I will be there. I will have my inheritance in God's kingdom. Because that is personally assured to you by the death and resurrection, the going of the ark three days ahead of you in journey. Uh, that is personally assured to you. And that joy, no one can take from you. Let no man take your crown, Jesus says. That no matter what others say, no matter what this world says, no matter what those around us in, amongst the others in God's people say, we will be there. And we must believe that. And the only reason you and I will not be in the kingdom of God is not because we might not be good enough. It's because we can't see that we will not be able to believe in his love, in his desire to give us the kingdom. And I wonder in what intonation of voice the Lord Jesus said to his people, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure or good will to give you the kingdom. I wonder if he said it in a pitying way, if he said it in a challenging way, or if he said it in a sad sort of way, just so sad that human dysfunction and, and barrier against believing in love, God's love, uh, is so strong. That, you know, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It's not, as I say, that God only wants to save a few people. He wants to save actually everybody. But I, I fear that only a remnant shall be saved. Well, Scripture itself says that. But only a remnant will be saved. Because only a remnant, I think, allow themselves to get that, that blast, as it were, of the vision of the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I, I would like to conclude by reading those very words of Paul in the end of Romans 11, where I think he, as it were, got it. And it's quite as though he's inspired in all that he wrote. I think uh, you can feel, on, shall I say, a, a human sort of level, how he sort of is carried away with that realisation that, wow, we really will be saved. And I hope that you will share with me that, uh, let's say, that blast of knowledge, of realisation, at this moment, that we shall be saved. Okay, Romans 11. And so all Israel shall be saved, for the gifts and calling of God are without change of mind. For God has concluded all men in unbelief, so that he might have mercy upon all. O oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory for ever.